Hello, this is Michael Canfield, and thank you for joining us today on The Dog Watch, where we consider dogs, watches, life in the field, and where we go wherever curiosity takes us. On today's episode, we talk with Yuliana Kaminsky, a researcher who studies human sociality and social cognition, but who also studies dogs. In the conversation, we discuss the nature of cognition and what we know about how humans interact with dogs, how the familiar puppy dog eyes came to be, and what our dogs are actually feeling when they put them on. We also cover the importance of eye contact and human-dog interactions and how these behaviors may be present in other animals like horses. Before we get into our conversation, don't forget to check out the Dog Watch website, which logically exists at onthedogwatch.com, especially the forward slash dogs tab. We have an Instagram hashtag feed, and if you hashtag a photo of your dog, hashtag on the dog watch, we will be able to see different members of the big family of dogs on this podcast. Each episode, I'll choose one dog to highlight, so make sure to include your dog's name and what you know about its breed or breeds and its background. Since this is the first episode, I'm going to highlight the dog watch staff dogs in the hashtag feed, which are two Labrador retrievers, English labs, Lily and Pepper. Lily is a yellow lab, and Pepper is a half yellow and half fox red. As you may know, labs were originally bred by fishermen in Newfoundland for their ability to swim and help bring in fish and nets. A few of these dogs were taken to England in the 19th century, where this retrieving instinct was molded into bringing in birds on hunts. Labs are obviously great family and hunting dogs, loving, loyal, playful, and need a good bit of exercise. But despite being popular choices, labs are only one of just hundreds of breeds of dogs, not to mention all the mixes out there. So we are looking forward to seeing your dogs and learning about them too. One last thing before we start. I wanted to ask if you would leave the podcast a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and also send it on to a couple friends who might be interested, as this helps get the word out about the dog watch. Okay, here's our conversation with Yuliana. Well, welcome. My guest today is Juliana Kaminsky, who is a reader in the Department of Psychology at the University of Portsmouth in the UK, and previously held posts at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig at Churchill College, and was also a member of the Evolutionary Psychology Lab at Cambridge University as well. Juliana, welcome to the program. Hello. Well, thanks for joining us. And you're an academic and you study human sociality and social cognition. Can you kind of explain what that means and what kind of questions you're interested in? And then I'd be interested in kind of how that led you to study dogs. Yeah. So what I'm really interested in is the, um, as you said, the evolution of human sociality. So when we talk about social cognition, what we actually mean is um, we want to understand what individuals understand about others. So how do they view others? What do they understand about others' minds? What do they understand about others' um, goals, desires, etc.? So that's what I'm interested in. Great. And so how does that, I mean, general background lead you to then studying dogs? Again, we're kind of coming from it of this one study that you did. That's how I got interested in your work. How did how did that lead you, and when did that lead you into into this question about um, canines? 
Yeah, so so one approach to studying the evolution of um, human cognition is to look at other species. And one um, very straightforward comparison when you're comparing species to understand human evolutionary history is to compare humans with their closest living genetic relatives, which are chimpanzees. So um, I do work with chimpanzees, and that's, I think, the, the, the one comparison that many people understand really easily because um, um, it's, it's, it's quite logical to look at our closest genetic um, relative uh, when we think about um, the evolution of a cognitive skill. But I got interested in dogs because they have a particularly interesting evolutionary history because they've actually evolved in the human environment. So they basically evolved um, next to us. So um, we've been living with dogs for more than 30,000 years. And we think that maybe during that time, um, dogs have adapted in specific ways to the human environment. And um, I'm really interested um, in understanding whether this has affected um, dogs' cognition. That's super interesting. I'm wondering, so for you, what does cognition mean? I think some people who are listening might not have a, a strong sense of the, the scientific or um, research-based understanding of what that is. Yeah, so when I talk about cognition, um, I actually mean a flexible understanding of the environment. So this can be the social environment, so understanding others. So it's, um, for example, you could um, think about understanding others' minds, which is something that we humans do quite readily. So we do um, make predictions about what other individuals are thinking or what we think they might want to do. So what their goals are or what their um, beliefs are about certain things. So we do this all the time, that there's something that is part of our social interaction with others. So I got really interested in the question whether animals do the same thing. So do animals also um, have any concept about others' minds? Do they in any way have any under, other, other understanding um, what goes on in other individuals' minds? So in, in a sense, then, your question is also maybe in chimpanzees, but now in dogs, like, do dogs have any sense of what's going on in our minds? Is that partly what you mean? Or, or, or do humans have a sense of what's going on in dogs' minds? Um, no, I'm really interested um, in understanding if dogs understand anything about our minds. So what got me interested in in, in studying dogs um, was a very um, simple thing that I think every dog owner uh, knows. <laughs> and is it might not re really look very smart or might not look very, um, very specific or special in any way. Um, dogs follow human pointing. So when we point at something, so we use our finger to, to to point in a certain direction, dogs actually follow that. And that doesn't, um, I'm sure for any dog owner out there, that's not something that you would find particularly interesting. But it is interesting if you put it in a comparative um, perspective. Um, um, what do I mean by that? So if you would, for example, point for a chimpanzee, um, the chimpanzee would completely ignore your gesture. Mm. This is something that for chimpanzees has no meaning 
has no relevance. Um, whereas for dogs, it does. So dogs treat human communication when it comes to understanding gestures um, very similarly to, to human children. So they respond um, and they respond quite readily, readily and um, they seem to really um, understand to some extent. And I think it is this comparison between chimpanzees and dogs in this tiny little task that got me really excited and um, made me want to study dogs even more. Wow, that's incredible. And when we think about chimpanzees, we would sort of assume, I think, that they would be able to do everything or imagine what's going on in our minds just better than dogs. But it seems like what you're saying is that dogs seem to have a different um, set of skills or set of traits that allow them to to imagine what's going on in our minds. And it, it seems like that kind of leads you to this paper um, which you published in PNAS, which is obviously one of the premier journals. It's called Evolution of Facial Muscle Anatomy in Dogs. And I'm just curious, can you kind of explain how from pointing you made the transition to thinking about this um, facial muscle anatomy and these the eyebrow raises and things like that and, and kind of where that study came from, what you were looking to, to ask in that in that study. Yeah, so, so I mean, it's this, um, all this research on dogs' understanding of human gestures, not just pointing, other gestures as well, that got me really interested into um, further studying dog-human communication in general. So I wanted to understand um, how good are dogs in, in understanding our communication, the way we communicate, but also the other way around, how do we as humans um, in some sense, understand and perceive dogs and, and their communication. And we did a study some, some years back where we were interested in um, understanding how humans respond to dogs' facial communication. Um, and we, um, this study was, uh, in some sense, the, the first approach to to that question, and we were interested in whether or not there is something in dogs' faces that humans might find attractive. So what we did is we went to um, different dog shelters um, across the UK, and we videotaped the dogs in those shelters, and we videotaped them in interactions with a strange human, okay? So a, a stranger would approach the dog's um, room and would just simply videotape the dog's behavior. And we analyzed the dog's behavior when they were meeting this strange person. And we looked at everything. We looked at all kinds of behaviors, barking, tail wagging, etc. But we also, and that's the point I want to make, uh, looked at the facial movements that the dogs produce, so their facial expressions. And then we asked the shelters to inform us when these dogs were adopted from the shelter. So now we had two data points. We had the dog's behavior when they were meeting a stranger, and we had the number of days that these dogs spent in a shelter. And what we found is there was a specific facial movement um, that dogs produced when they met a strange human 
Um, and the more often dogs produced that movement, the quicker they were rehomed from the shelter. And that movement was an eyebrow movement um, where dogs raise their eyebrow and um, uh, we, we call it this puppy dog eye movement that dogs produce that we humans find so cute and um, that we can hardly resist. And we found that dogs that produce that movement um, would be rehomed from a shelter quicker than, than other dogs. And no other behavior of the dogs had an effect. Wow. So, so now that made us... Yeah, go ahead. Well, that made us think. Yeah, so that made us think, okay, so could it be that this is something that we humans respond to um, uh, unconsciously, we are, we are not aware, but that we have um, unconsciously uh, selected dogs that produce this facial movement. And if we have, then could it be that this is something that is really more recent in evolutionary history? So we compared um, the facial anatomy of dogs to the facial anatomy of dogs' closest genetic relative, which is the wolf. And we found um, that wolf faces and dog faces, when it comes to their muscle anatomy, are almost completely identical. The only difference is in the muscle anatomy around the eyes, where the dogs have a muscle which we couldn't find in the wolves. And that's the muscle which produces this eyebrow movement that obviously we humans find so attractive. Wow. That, I mean, that's incredible to imagine one yes. that I think what you're saying is that, you, you know, when a dog's in a shelter, you might predict that the wagging of the, the mm -hmm. dog, right? Like how happy it seems or, or whatever might be a factor, but really the main one is just how they give puppy dog eyes is, is their best bet for getting adopted. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And that really um, surprised us because we thought, okay, so this is um, an, 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 a context where you would assume that um, people would make a kind of conscious decision um, about which dog to adopt. But um, uh, what we found is that it turns out that in this context, at least in our study, um, people were mainly guided by responding to this, this cue that, they, that we can't help to respond to. And we think that the reason why we cannot help to respond to it is because this movement that dogs produce um, with their eyebrow um, muscles is a movement that humans produce when they are sad. So it creates mm. this, I would call it almost an illusion of this sad face that we that we just can't resist and that we want to nurture and, and, and kind of respond to and, and we simply want to help. Right, and I, just to make sure I understand and it's a nice um, figure in your in your paper, the, the the muscles you're talking about, there's one that's kind of right above the eyebrow that pulls it up, and there's one to the side that kind of pulls it, when it pulls laterally, it pulls the eyebrow back down, and those those are the unique things. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. So okay. that what they produce is a movement that kind of raises the eyebrow, but also slightly turns it inwards, so it gives the dog this kind of sad um, uh, face. 
So we do that, right? And you in the paper sort of suggest like especially children um, have a very it exaggerates the the eyes at etc. makes them look bigger, more childlike, etc. Um, so that's you know one feature. But if it's a true signal in humans, right, that we do that when we're sad. Do dogs do it when they're sad? Like, obviously, if you're in a shelter, uh, the dog's probably not super happy. But is do you have a sense of it? Is that correlated, or is it just the dog knows or has been bred to do that to to manipulate a human? Do you see what I mean? Yes. So I think whether this is a true signal, so really indicates a sad dog, for example, I think is a really interesting question which we need to follow up on, um, and that's something that we are working on at the moment. So for now, my my intuition or my hypothesis is that it is not. So my hypothesis is that it is really just a dog moving its eyebrows because we have created that. So we have kind of, so it doesn't necessarily mean the dog is in any emotional state necessarily. Um, it just simply moves it, its eyebrows. It doesn't, um, so, so one thing that we were also really interested in is whether or not dogs might have learned to to produce this signal more because they've learned it works okay so is, is there any indication that dogs might produce this intentionally if, if you if you will right. um, and we couldn't find any indication of that so what we did find is that dogs produce more facial movements um, when someone is looking at them compared to when the person, um, is, for example, oriented away, so not looking at them. Um, but we couldn't find any indication that the eyebrow movement has any special function or is in any way a learned signal that they that they produce more, for example, in a food context where it's really uh, where it would be really beneficial <laughs> to mm -hmm. to uh, manipulate the the human. So we couldn't find any indication of that. So it's it seems like then, this is a artifact or a, a product of domestication somehow we don't know whether it is linked to the emotional state and that's something you're of the of the dog and that's something you're following up on it's a little it's a little sad to think that you know yeah. we're being manipulated um in some ways and and the dog isn't actually feeling how we're imagining they're feeling um and i guess that you're also saying just to confirm that this is unlikely to be a learned thing. And I guess it makes sense because we call them puppy dog eyes and puppy dogs would be, you know, young dogs who seem to do this early on. And I guess that's a question. Is that true? I mean, they start doing it. That's my, my sense, right? They do it as puppies very early on. Um, but do you have a sense of when they start doing this? Is it right from birth or? Yes. So we have some data which actually shows that they, so, so we don't have data from um, right from birth. Um, so um, what we have is the kind of data like starting at um, uh, eight weeks mm -hmm. um, uh, where we can see this movement already. So um, and we don't necessarily see a major increase um, over time, indicating that, as you said, it's not necessarily something that is learned over time, um, but it's just something that is there. Um, but I think we still need to definitely explore this further to to um, find out. And what, what I'm also really interested in is, is this something they produce when they interact with with other dogs? Um, or is it mm. is it a is it a movement that is in some sense reserved for humans? <laughs> um, 
And if it's produced with other dogs, then does it have any function? Is there anything, um, is it produced in certain contexts, for example? Um, so those are all questions that we want to follow up on and that we um, that we need to study um, as a follow up on this. Right. So just to be clear, you, you don't we don't know that we don't know if they give puppy dog eyes to their parents to get more food or access to whatever that we just have no idea at this point. Is that right? So, so we do we do have some um, uh, study or some data that suggests that they do not um, do this to get more food of their of their owners from their or owners, of their right. people. Yeah. Right. But um, even, so that it's not this. Hmm? Yeah. So even access to food, for example, when there's a parent and an, and a, a young dog, it doesn't. The young dog wouldn't do that to manipulate the owner, but it also, there's no evidence that it would do that to sort of play on the good graces of the parent to let them have more food or anything like that. Yeah, we don't know that yet. Yeah, so that's the that's the part we have no data on yet, like the, the dog-dog part. So we, we have no um, data on that yet. So that's a question that we still need to answer. That's fascinating. I wonder also, you mentioned just sort of in your paper as some interesting um, related questions about dog breeds. There are obviously dog breeds that are closer to wolves and ones that are further away. And I'm curious what you know about how this is distributed across dogs and then other animals too, which I, I have a sense that that's a question you're interested in, but like, does, is this unique to dogs? Are there other correlates um, aside from, you know, humans or do you not know yet? Um, so that w what we do know is that, for example, cats do not produce that movement. So um, the movement, we, we call that movement the AU101. So um, AU stands for action unit, and 101 is just the number that this action unit is, is given. Um, so that's a fancy <laughs> term for, for, for this kind of movement. And so what we do know is that cats, for example, do not produce this movement. So there is no AU 101 in cats. But interestingly, horses do. Um, so we don't yet know what that means. We don't yet know um, whether horses um, show similar patterns in these different um, contexts that we already um explored dogs behavior in so we don't really know to what extent that's comparable um but horses do produce that movement which i think is really interesting and, um and we also um, i mean we had these different hypotheses what what this i think that's also a really crucial question that we need to explore um is what does this movement really do with humans so um we have the hypothesis that it is creating this illusion of sadness, or it might be, um, as you mentioned, it might be that it uh, makes the eyes of the dogs look bigger and therefore a little, a little more childlike and, 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 and cute, and we just want to nurture that creature. But I think I'm, I'm also really interested in another hypothesis, which, it, which is that this movement um, kind of resembles a movement that humans produce when we actually communicate and we want to emphasize something that we said. So when we when we are really when we want to emphasize uh, emphasize something that we are saying, and we want our the other person to really listen, then we tend to raise our eyebrows. 
and we make our eyes a bit larger. It's something that we can hardly control, but we do it when we when we talk to each other. Um, so I was interested. I'm also interested in the hypothesis that it might be that it creates. So the fact that dogs produce this movement might create this illusion of them actually listening to us. Okay, so it creates this illusion of attention to some extent, um, which I think is also an interesting hypothesis. Right. As a teacher, I'll have to pay attention to that, whether my students are actually giving me the honest signal of paying attention yes. or <laughs> or they're yes, doing exactly. it as dogs might. Yeah. Um, so is that what I, I learned a new word in your paper call, uh, called ostensive? Is that an, what you mean by an ostensive cue? Yes, exactly. It's this. Okay. It's this. When we communicate, when we talk to each other, um, we we produce this set of ostensive cues. So, in some sense, those are um, cues that should indicate to the under, other individual, please listen to me. What I'm what I'm saying now, or what I'm communicating, is really important, really exciting. So please pay attention. So, in some sense, it's it's a little bit. Um, uh, it comes out a lot when we, for example, teach something to little children. So if you want to teach a child, um, I don't know, how to how to cut their fingernails or whatever, some, something, um, then you would uh, produce these kinds of ostensive cues. So it's especially when we communicate with um, individuals who might not fully... Um, pay attention to us and we want to grab their attention. Um, and raising our eyebrows is, is part of that um, set of cues that we are producing in that context. So I think it is really interesting that dogs have this cue in their face and that they are producing it and we are right. responding to it. Yeah, it, it, it begs a lot of questions. I. I wonder too, you mentioned with horses, one of the interesting things that you were able to do with wolves is actually look at, you know, the facial anatomy of the wild ancestor of the domesticated dog and then domesticated dogs. With horses, it's at least from what I remember about the evolution of horses, there are wild horses, but the wild horses that still exist, I believe, descended from domesticated populations you can correct me if i'm wrong but i wonder you know one that might be harder to do a study like the one you did on the other hand it would be kind of interesting to see whether even the horses if they you know the wild i think that the ponies of the chincoteague and assateague island in virginia for example whether they went back and have less ostensive cues for example than than domesticated horses um, I'm just wondering if you've thought about that yet or or how far your thinking has gone on horses. Well, I think one one interesting population to look at would be like Preskovalski horses. I hope hmm. I'm pronouncing that right. Yeah, I don't but, know about um, them. Because they are, they are um, in, in some sense, an evolutionary ancestor or an evolutionary close relative um, that is not domesticated in hmm. any way. So they would be a very interesting population to look at. Um, so I'm not necessarily involved in that research, but I hope and believe that um, um, whoever does that <laughs> will, will, will look at them because I think that's the comparison you want to make. Great. And so again, with dog breeds, just to follow up, do you know, 
which, like do all dogs do this or do I, I mean I think that some of the basal things like different or, or or do they have the same AU101 which I really love this the scientific jargon <laughs> um the puppy dog eyes are there very is there variation across dogs or is it mostly similar well, at the moment, uh, we don't know. So that's another. <laughs> so you're asking all the right questions. So um, so what we're working on at the moment is um, looking at the anatomy of d different dog breeds. And we are particularly interested in comparing um, evolutionarily more modern breeds to breeds that are more closely related to the wolf. So that we know that there are ma some dog breeds that are um, older or let's say genetically closer to the wolf than others. So for example, the Husky or the Malamut um, or Akita and Inu, etc. or some of those breeds are more closely related to the wolf than modern breeds like the Labrador or the German Shepherd or any of mm -hmm. those breeds. Um, so what we are working on at the moment is to compare those breeds. And what was interesting that in our sample that we used in the PNAS paper, there was one um, husky specimen, and the husky looked very much like the wolf. Hmm. Um, so that would, um, if that is true, uh, and, and uh, because we only had one um, specimen, so only one um, head, we we would need to um, we would need a larger sample to 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 make sure that that's not just an outlier. But if that's true, then it might indicate an. Um, even more recent event, so something that happened in modern dogs. Right, and w one wonders, especially with a husky or or you know sled dogs or work dogs, whether it would be less important for them um, to have certain of those behaviors, whereas others may well benefit have benefited more. And and pretty seems like a pretty labile, you know, characteristic, right? Like. It's not that hard to change. I th it would seem. Is that your sense? Like across domestication. Well, I think it's quite interesting that I mean um, uh, that um, from an evolutionarily um, perspective, it's a very short time frame in which you suddenly create a new muscle in in, in that face. So um, it is quite interesting that it's such a fast process. It would make a little more sense if it were the whole population. So if I'd be, I'd be surprised to see breed differences. Hmm. But in the end, if there are breed differences, then it just means that it is just more recent. So it's something that we um, um, selected for more recently, and and but then quite strongly because then it's a really recent because modern breeding. Those, all these modern breeds that we know today, they are just a few hundred years old. So that would indicate then a very um, rapid and very strong selection. Right. I mean, that's amazing to think, you know, you're, you're thinking 15 to 30,000 years or whatever of partnership with humans. But then if this was just something that happened in the last couple hundred years, that is really a fast change of yes. morphology and behavior. Yes, exactly. So um, that would be surprising, but um, yeah, yeah, we need to just find out. So I had a, a related um, question, just sort of as we as we round the bases here. In your paper, you talked about the sclera of the eye a little bit too, and I wonder how that's related. I, I thought it was fascinating. I hadn't known much about 
the importance of the white part of the eye. And yeah. I'm just curious if you might be able to talk just a minute about how that's important to to dogs and to humans in, in their communication. So again, I mean, it starts with understanding um, human communication or um, how um, humans work. <laughs> so mm -hmm. if you look at, um, there's one feature in our face, which is very prominent. Um, and that's the this extended white sclera in our eyes. So this big white part that we have in our eyes that is very visible. Um, and uh, one and 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 by the way, we are the only um, ape uh, that has that. So if you look at our um, closest living relatives, the great apes, the chimpanzees, orangutans, gorillas, they have dark eyes. So you don't mm. see the, um, the white sclera in their eyes. Um, so, um, which then brings us to the question, what is that for? <laughs> so why do we have this? Because this really prominent visible thing in our face that um, makes it to some extent, if you look at or uh, think about it from an evolutionary perspective, it, it made our face very prominent. So it made, it made it difficult for us to hide <laughs> in right. some sense. Um, and so the idea is that it's actually evolved or it has a, it has the benefit of helping us to communicate um, so that it's basically um, made it easier to to um, see our eye direction to and and made it easier for us to kind of um, see if someone is attentive if someone is actually looking at us if someone is responding to us um, so that it, it turned into this um, uh, cooperative signal that helps us um, in our communicative interactions. So in some sense, um, you could argue that the white sclera is part of these ostensive cues that we talked about before. Um, we know that kids from a very young age um, respond to the white sclera. So when they when it is visible, they um, they um, they attend to it more when when it's when the eyes are directed at them and it needs the white sclera for them to to figure out if eyes are directed at them and all this kind of um, stuff. So so, so humans yeah. have it right. Apes don't, but then maybe you're getting to it. But I'm, I'm jumping the yes. Is it Sorry. dogs too? Um, so dogs have it. Um, some breeds. Uh, in some breeds, it's more visible than in others, um, but it is in general not super visible in dog eyes. Hmm. Um, but um, we had the hypothesis that maybe uh, this eyebrow movement, which makes the eyes of the dogs look bigger, also exposes more of the white sclera, which then again makes it attractive for us. Or makes it kind of um, something that we respond to because we, as humans, respond to the white sclera. Hmm. That's fascinating. So I want to be respectful of your time, and um, I could ask questions all day long. I have one more, though. Um, I'm curious, you know, when I was a kid, and I think many children, people would say, don't look into the, the eyes of dogs, right? And I know in your paper, you're, you talked about how that interaction of looking into the eyes 
is different with humans and dogs than say with wolves that you know humans and wolves don't don't have that same kind of eye contact so one i'm curious about why the whether that sort of direct eye contact is part of what you you were kind of thinking about with the eyebrow movements, et cetera, and, and two, whether that's a bad thing. And maybe, you know, I know you're not a, a dog trainer or anything, but is that true that you shouldn't look at, you know, dogs in the eye in that way? Does it make them more aggressive or anyway? So I'm just curious about those things. Well, I think it depends on the context a lot. So, but what we are saying is that, and I think that's really interesting, is that um, in our interactions with dogs, um, eye contact has turned into a co cooperative signal. So actually dogs even need eye contact in some situations to figure out what the human wants from them. So um, if I point for them, for example, I point um, in a certain direction and I establish eye contact, they will follow the point. If I don't, they might not. Okay, so, so mm -hmm. th this is all research that we have. So we know that eye contact for dogs is actually a positive, can be a positive, communicative, cooperative signal. Um, however, in a different context, if I have an aggressive dog um, in front of me that is not necessarily ready to engage with me in any way, I would probably not look them in the eye. <laughs> hmm. So I got good advice, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. As long as you don't know the dog, it's probably better. Um, to follow that advice. Right. And it, but it's interesting that that is a channel of communication that developed between humans and dogs that wouldn't exist in other species in the same way. And I don't know if it exists in other species, um, but it doesn't seem like it really does. I, I don't know if you're in a, in a zoo, is eye contact important for other, say, non-domesticated animals? Like would a, would someone, you know, make eye contact with apes or in the same way, I or mean, is this pretty I, different? Well, I think apes would make eye contact. They would just not um, hold it. Hmm. So I think what is interesting about dogs, and, um, and there I totally agree with you, is this new thing about our relationship, is that actually dogs um, really like to look into our eyes. Um, so they really want, they even hold eye contact to some extent, um, and for quite a while. Um, as long as we are in a positive, cooperative kind of context, um, they, they, I mean, if you look at working dogs like a Border Collie or, or any other working breed, they establish eye contact all the time and they hold it because they want to figure out what is it my human wants me to do next. Wow. So they really are a partner in a communicative way with us, um, not just in the work or in the activity, but actually in the communication um, in ways that other animals aren't, which is absolutely fascinating. And I think it's, it's something we often know. Do you, I have to ask you, do you have dogs yourself? I've got one dog, yes. He's sleeping behind me <laughs> on the sofa. <laughs> what kind of dog, what, what's the background of your dog? It's a mix um, of many breeds. Um, uh -huh. Uh, there's some Labrador in there and other breeds as well. But uh -huh. He's still very young, so I've just got him. So. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Well, yeah. you know, I'm super grateful. I, I wanted to thank you so much for your time and, and sharing the knowledge with those of us who might not know quite, a, quite as much or nearly as much about dogs and, and these aspects of animal behavior. And I wish you the best of luck 
uh, with the research and look forward to what new things you learn. Thank you very much and thank you for having me. Thanks again to Juliana Kaminsky for her willingness to share such fascinating knowledge and perspectives with us. Don't forget to leave a review of the podcast, send it to a few friends, and use hashtag OnTheDogWatch on Instagram to post a photo of your dog. Our music credit today is Whiskey on the Mississippi by Kevin McLeod, courtesy of Creative Commons. This is Michael Canfield. Until the next time we meet on the Dog Watch, I'll leave you with the words of the great naturalist John Burroughs. What we love to do, that we do well. To know is not all, it is only half love is the other half.